Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Everyone is creative by nature. And if you just ask any first grade class, who wants to come up to the front of the room and draw me a picture? How many hands goes up? Every single hand goes up. And then you ask the same group in sixth grade, half as many hands, the same group when they're seniors. And if you're lucky, if two or three people want to sort of stick their neck out. Now, that's a cultural thing. That just shows us that creativity is not something that's bestowed on us at birth. It's not some magical fairy dust that some people receive and others don't. That creativity is a birthright. Everyone has it by nature. In fact, we are creating machines as humans. So why negate that? Why try and pretend that that doesn't exist. Rather, let's lean into that and say that, okay, if we understand creativity is more than just art, it's combining anything to make things new and useful. It's the solution to every problem that we will ever know. That creativity is a habit, not a skill. Why wouldn't we train that? And what I'm trying to get us to do is lean into that, that it's not fickle or whimsical or naive to pursue the thing that you love or in fact, creativity that it's actually the most practical thing that you could pursue. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Chase, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Trini, I'm happy to be here, man. Uh, congratulations on all your success. Yeah, well, congratulations to you. You have a new book out, uh, which we're going to talk about in quite a bit of detail. I think that this is interesting because literally almost a year to the day, I was having this conversation with you uh, <laughs> about my own book over at Creative Live. Uh, but before we get into the book, uh, I want to ask you something that I actually didn't ask you the last time you were here, and that is, what did your parents do for work? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you ended up making throughout your life? Oh, it's a great call. And I think it, it paints a little backstory that is both helpful and uh, I think probably doesn't um, provide as much vision uh, for, for the future that I took and for what's possible for everybody who's listening. But uh, let, me, let me answer the question. So my dad was a cop. My mom was a secretary at a biotech firm. Um, I was raised lower middle, lower middle class. I think my parents did everything they could to, I mean, the way that I describe it is the heat was at like 58 degrees in our house year round. (laughs) And it's like, if you're cold, put on a sweatshirt, 
And, and yet they still, you know, I, I didn't want for, for anything that was critical to, you know, health or safety or anything like that. I was always, I was always well taken care of. Um, but neither of them graduated college. Um, and I have a lot of pride in sort of the, the lower middle or blue class upbringing. Um, but it did certainly shape sort of the inputs. And I think this is true for most people culturally. There's a lot of inputs that give us what we should, what we ought, what we must do with our lives in order to please the people that are closest to us. And, you know, the, the irony is that that's usually not the right advice mm-hmm. and it limits our thinking. And in part, that's what we, we talk a lot about in the book and whether it's your parents, your family, your upbringing, your, your, um, socioeconomic status, where you're born and, and keeping in mind, like I'm white male yeah. born in the United States, born in the seventies, like b- by most measures, that's every advantage you can have. And deciding that I was going to actually listen to what my calling in life was and pursue it in spite of, um, the advice that I was getting, knowing that it was the hardest thing that I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine, um, what that would be like from people with people who had less advantage at birth than I did. Yeah. So I think that stacks up to be like a material reason that this book matters is because look what, what a different world and life we could each have if we were able to navigate all these inputs from culture, from our parents, from our teachers and career counselors, and and actually do the thing that we're supposed to be doing with our lives and listen to that that calling that's inside of us. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that you brought up that your dad was a cop and that you also grew up with the advantage of being white male, uh, you know, growing up in the 70s. It's funny because I don't think that we are quick to acknowledge how much privilege most of us get. We just say, oh, well, I worked my ass off. And, you know, we don't we really fail to acknowledge that in my mind. But one of the things I wonder is, you know, particularly in the sort of divisive culture that we're living in, in terms of, you know, what we're seeing on the news constantly yeah. What, as a police officer, did your dad teach you about tolerance and diversity? Um, it was, that's a really interesting question. And I remember um, <clears throat> hearing stories and seeing photographs of his, him in, in um, the 60s, like 1968, with all the riots were going on and, um, and just talking about the diverse, the requirements of a diverse um I guess, input of ideas and that it's not about one side or the other. It's about having the discussion publicly and, you know, and appropriately. And sometimes that's, you know, taking to the streets and demonstrating. And some other times it's in, it's in, um, the legal system. Other times it's in lawmaking and whatnot. So it was reasonably balanced. Um, I think also the, the way that he framed my upbringing was, it was pretty gritty and real. Like it was not, I was not, um, was not catered to. Uh, I was not, I was told like the, the world is a real place and, um, and not unnecessarily. So I didn't grow up like, you know, a thug or anything by any stretch, but it was also, it was just, there was, it was a healthy dose of reality. Definitely not coddled. Mm-hmm. Like no one's going to hand you something. And, um, and also that, labels and words matter. You see the effect that, you know, being born into poverty or, um, or privilege by contrast, like you just mentioned has an effect on the outcome. Um, and so it was, it was basically to take nothing for granted and also assume 
that you are going to have to take good care of yourself and those around you and, and push for the ideas that you want to see possible in the world. So it was, it, while it wasn't a world of limiting beliefs or sorry, well, it wasn't a, it was, it was a, a world of, you know, supportive, like you have to, you have to work hard. The flip side is that <clears throat> there was still, I think when you're, um, uh, blue collar family. I mean, and I, I grew up with like the way I talk about it also is uh, I had upside down Nikes and Nikes with two eyes, <laughs> like Adidas with four stripes. I had, you know, like a counterfeit stuff that was trying to, trying to fit in, but you know, stuff that we could afford. Um, and you know, the, the, I think the flip side of the, um, while it's gritty and real that, Hey, you know, if you're hardworking and talented, that you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a professional athlete or a, you know, fill in the blank equals approved by mass culture. Mm -hmm. And so there was this, there's a dual duality there. And I think that's that, that cultural input that I was referencing earlier that we're, we're really, whether we believe it or not, we're, we're, there's so many inputs that are shaping what's possible for this one precious life that we have. And, and what's being presented to us is, is really, really narrow, unfortunately narrow. And it's up to us to now, you know, using this book as a guidepost, step back, look at what we actually want for ourselves, make a plan and then execute against that plan. Yeah. Do you have siblings? No siblings, only child. And I think okay. that the reality was that I was a handful. <laughs> and they said, you know, I think we're good. <laughs> we're good with one. That's the way that, that it was, it was presented to me and both tongue in cheek and sort of with the, the side eye, you know, it's like, yeah, we're, uh, you, you were plenty. So we were, we were happy not to have any more kids. So one thing I, I remember from our last conversation and also, you know, from parts of the book is you were at one point headed to becoming a professional soccer player. And yep. at another point, potentially headed to becoming a doctor. Yeah. And the reason those two things struck me is because regardless of either one of those paths, what had to have been instilled for you to end up on each one of those trajectories is a hell of a lot of work ethic. Yeah. Yeah. Where did that come from? And, you know, like, how did that develop as you aged? Um, it's a good question, Srini. I really, I, I think because it does frame the, maybe frame the lens that a lot of us look at life through, which is reward, achievement, pat on the back, social acceptance. Um, so the hard work, I think, you know, if, you know, do you take personality tests and all these things, you find out a lot about yourself or, or, you know, this intuitively about yourself. And I was certainly rewarded for achievement. And, you know, I'm not, I don't think my parents did a bad job. Um, but, part of being rewarded for achievement. If you look at that as, you know, go back in childhood wounds and things like that. That's like, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm, if I do what, um, others approve of, then I get, you know, then I feel better about myself. And if I disappoint others or, or fail to achieve or succeed at something, then I'm bad. And, you know, there's a, there's a superficial, um, upside to that, but there's a real downside. That's the, you know, our shadow side, which is we build our, our vision of ourselves and the image of others. And, and that can be really toxic. So I do think that there's a piece of that in, in my, I mean, my parents were super young parents, uh, had me when they were in their really young twenties and <clears throat> got married at 20 and 19 or 20, 21 and 20 respectively had me shortly thereafter. So, you know, they did the best that they could with what they had, but I think my story is not uncommon that 
in order to sort of fit in, we have to meet a series of molds. And the reality is that the molds are ever changing. And, you know, if you're trying to fit into a box and the box is changing and it's culturally made out of television and Instagram feeds and things that are not achievable, then there's a dialogue that we have with ourselves. So I did grow up with a, a, being having a hard work ethic instilled in me. And I think that was exacerbated or underscored by, oh shit, I want to fit in. And mm. if I'm not approved, if, if no one approves of what I'm doing, that I'm bad, not just I'm bad at X or Y, that I'm a bad person. You know, that's, you know, see Brene Brown's work on shame and guilt and vulnerability and all those things. So again, I, I just trying to paint this with a, the right brush too. This is not like I was fending for my right to, to food or to mm-hmm. shelter or anything. Um, but you know, things being relative, that certainly has an impact on our psyche. And for me, that's part of why I wanted to write the book, not necessarily that we're all coming from X type of a household, but that we have these inputs and that rather than feeling like a cork in the tide, I wanted to put a system together that everyone's creative by nature. We have limitless possibility that creativity is a habit, not a skill. And it's a practice, not a product. And it's the, the, the act of creating in small ways, what it does is it helps us see the lens that, oh my gosh, we are our own agent. We are we, we are capable of affecting the world around us. And ultimately, if you, it's the same muscle that when you're baking a cake or building a business or, or creating anything in this world, not just art, but creating anything, that's the same set of muscles we use to create our life. And so why not use those muscles in small daily ways, strengthen them so that we can create the living and the life that we want for ourselves? Yeah. Speaking of inputs and being uh, rewarded for things that are external, I think that you and I were talking, I remember when I was at Creative Live and I told you that I see the world through the lens of outliers and you do too. Yes. Uh, Many of the people who come to Creative Live who are your guests, if we measured them solely based on metrics and external measures are more successful than you are. Yep. And I, and I don't, I'm not saying that as an insult. I am genuinely, you know, what I wonder is how you navigate that sort of, you know, mindset of, okay, how do I learn from these people without comparing myself to them? Yeah. My aspiration is always to, and I think we talk about this in the book and my aspiration is always to be around people from whom I can learn. I want to be the dumbest person in the room. I think this is a really admirable way to be, you know, I think, um, what is it? A players want to work with other A players and B players want to work with C players. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that's jobs in maybe um, yeah. jobs in, but Um, and so, um, I'm not at all shy in saying part of the, you know, the, my, the reflection of me as a lifelong learner and realizing that, you know, in, as a photographer, I became one of the top, um, commercial photographers in the world in a relatively short amount of time, because I was doing the thing that was natural that I desired. And that when you get to that level and one thing you understand mastery and it doesn't matter if it's collecting baseball cards or stamps or selling real estate or, or or anything if you can achieve a certain level in something that you're passionate about you start to see patterns and what it takes to master something or at least find a way to to make a go of it that that um where you're learning something and getting rewards not just external but internal and then you start to realize that one of the patterns is who you spend time with Mm-hmm. And that learning how to learn this master skill that we talk a little bit about in the book is how 
the efficacy, how, how effective and efficient something like that is, it's a natural desire, or it was for me anyway, to like, wow, how can I take my personal platform and turn it into a platform where I invite lots of other people to come and share their vision with the world, make it so compelling that they, you know, that people like Richard Branson and Brene Brown and Tim Ferriss and Ariana Huffington and Damon John and Debbie Millman or whoever want to come on this platform and then learn from them. Sir, we can, we educate tens of millions of people around the world from folks like I just mentioned, but there's a real strong corollary to who gets to hang out with those people, me and the people that go to work at Creative Live. There's a, it's a disproportionate, um, opportunity to both be inspired and put yourself in a community of like-minded people who, you know, who inspire you. And that's, there's a huge piece of community, uh, in the book that I think is invaluable. And I think it's widely misunderstood. And this is a little bit of a roadmap for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I have seen this project as really a gift. And I remember the day I got the book deal uh, with Penguin, I, I looked at sort of the list of Penguin authors. And my first thought was, what the hell am I doing here? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even at Creative Live, when you describe those people to me, I'm just like, wow. And I was among that group. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, speaking of inputs, uh, one thing I want to revisit is something that you had said about education. Take a listen. Oh, it's absolutely failing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's absolutely failing. I mean, the average student debt in our country is $35,200 in 2014. I think it's hovering around forty. Or forty-one thousand, or forty thousand five hundred now, and that's the average. So that means for everyone who owes sixty, there's somebody. Or everyone who owes twenty, yeah, there's someone who owes sixty grand. Yeah, and there's a lot of sort of strong economic theory that believes that a sort of a stagnating or a lukewarm economy has student debt as its basis because the students are um, hamstrung with college debt. The country, the government is disincentivized to remove it. It's the only debt that you can't mm-hmm. um, declare bankruptcy to escape. And, and the, the federal government makes a ton of money off the interest from student loans. So there's this a, a, a loop that disincentivizes breaking that loop. Um, so the fact that the average student graduates at $40,000 and it's hampering our whole economy, that in and of itself will drive people away. Uh, the fact that if our parents had one job, we will have five and the next generation or the generation that's growing up listening to this right now will have five at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the schooling system that we've grown up with or that pre- preceded us is absolutely incapable, um, literally 100% incapable. They cannot evolve fast enough to address this need. Um, and so it's going to have to. And we're seeing this. All of the data is very clear yeah. that you know, that, that going to a certain college only helps you if you go to the certain, the top, like one third of a percent, there's like 12 or 18 schools Mm -hmm. that if you go to these schools, you are disproportionately likely to get some job X. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Do you remember that? <laughs> Vaguely, yeah. I, I I don't remember where we were. Was that in the, uh, the our creative life? That was in your book. No, that was in in my conversation with you uh, here at the Unmistakable Creative. That was and, probably like 2014, shortly after 2016. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to to actually bring that clip back is nice job. because you're finding that out, you're going to pin me down. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> Well, I, I brought that, I chose that clip in particular, one, because I, I thought it'd be an interesting experiment to pull something back from a previous episode to work on my own editing skills. <laughs> uh, but it, the reason that clip in particular struck me is because of the fact that we are very close to a new election. Yeah. And, you know, as somebody who's written this book, I know that you and I both have pretty strong views of education in its current form, clearly, <laughs> based yeah. on, on that clip. And... I wonder how you think about it now when we're on the edge of an election, because I know that this is something a lot of candidates have talked about. And, you know, part of why I'm very heavily leaning towards Elizabeth Warren for this is because of the student loan debt issue. I have a feeling that is going to impact far more people in this election than I think many candidates realize. And so I wonder, how do you think about it in the context of politics, given where we're at? And how do you think about it in the context of the future of work? Beautiful question. Uh, nice job editing, by the way. And, uh, and, and it's just a, 
it's a brilliant reminder that we are caught in a loop, right? Because what has changed, and it, that was years ago, and what has changed? It, the only thing that's changed is the student debt is higher. It's higher. It's $1.5 trillion. It's higher. The, the debt from student debt is higher than credit card debt in our country. Just grab onto that for a second. That's gnarly, right? Mm-hmm. And when you combine that with the point that was made in that clip that you played, that it's the only debt that's not forgivable. And I think Elizabeth Warren just yesterday revealed that in her plan that 400, that the government is set to profit 470 billion with a B and that's profit mm-hmm. yeah. from student debt. That, that is to me astounding. And the fact that you can just literally fill out some paperwork and submit it in order to get that debt. Mm-hmm. The challenge isn't that we're supporting education, obviously that's, that's, and that's part of this sort of the cyclical, ch- the challenge and the scheme here is that <clears throat> what we have is that the educational system that those dollars are directed to is just incredibly, um, behind the times. And so I'm not, not advocating for college. I had the privilege of going, I, I found a way to get it paid for from athletic scholarship and some grants and some other things. But the reality is that it's not appropriate for most of the people who are currently diving into it. And that there's a, just a dominant cultural narrative, not dissimilar to the one that I'm talking about in the book, where you ought to be this, you should be that. This is that these five things are practical and everything else is impractical, including creativity because it's soft and whimsical and all these other things that are just factually not true. Creativity is the most practical uh, thing because you're literally com- figuring out how to combine unlikely things to new- something that's new and useful. So it's like the foundation of utility. And if you uncork that just another layer from what you'd presented in your question, we have a problem on our hands and the educational universe needs to find some solutions that are suited for the next century. And mm-hmm. reality is our, 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 like my wife was a public school teacher for a long time. I was raised in the public schools I don't think it's a public or a private thing. I think it's just generally we are living, we, we have a system that's so large and lumbering that can't evolve fast enough. And the future looks a lot more like um, decentralized, rapid learning in small chunks around areas of extra expertise and passion. And in short, where our true calling lies rather than in memorization, uh, and, um, geography, things that are able to be discovered or, or, or learned on a, on a phone in 10 seconds. So yeah. we need to restructure the, 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 the vision for the country. Um, if you're a, a USA listener and just conceptually, uh, in, in our culture and, and I would say global, like popular culture, it's like, what is education and why would it stop when you were 18? It should be continuing. And you certainly should have this, um, have the ability to continue to learn if in fact the, the aspiration of a government is trying to make its citizens successful. So through the lens of a, of an election that, you know, to go back to your direct question, it's absolutely going to be a critical issue. Um, and the, the, the numbers reveal that it's not getting, better. It's getting worse. So it's going to be more critical of an issue over time, not just in this upcoming presidential election, but in, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, every two years from here forward, because that's where a lot of the laws around our, our, um, our 
financial fiscal system are created in the in the off presidential years. Yeah. What do you say to the people who are not advocates of student loan forgiveness? Mm. Because there are people on the other side of the aisle who are like, you know what, you made your bed, you lie in it. I think that tends to come from a position of privilege. And mm-hmm. it was easy for you to get student loans or you didn't have to, or you didn't realize that you could literally go fill out a bunch of papers and the bar to get one was so low because of data that says that when you go to college, you're more successful, you know, just that that data is out of, <laughs> is out of sync with, um, with the current times. And it takes a long time for that data to make its way through pop culture. And it's just, I would just implore that you, you know, re re look at the data because it's pretty clear. Um, and, mm. and look at the privilege from which you're speaking because it's pretty clear. You can say, oh, it's your, your responsibility. You got yourself into this. Yeah, great. Go one layer, <laughs> go one layer deeper, if you would. And it's whether you're up for forgiveness or not, I think it's, it's really hard for, if you look at the systems and the data that's in place, like to say that the current educational paradigm matches what the future requires. I think that's like, if if you can look at those things and say that you believe that it's adequate or even good, I think that's where a massive disconnect. So forget whether student loan forgiveness is a good thing or a bad thing. I think, you know, that's that, I don't know if that devolves into a right and a left or a, um, you know, a fiscal or social or, you know, whatever, but let's, let's reshape the conversation. And I think this, you know, not, not accidentally drives back to the book, which is current Mm -hmm. system does not adequately support it. And in part, until that system is sort of refurbished, which let's be real is it's, there's no solution on the near term horizon that we need as individuals to take stock in what we can do now to affect our future and our near future and our far future. And the reality is we've been sold a narrative. And I don't think there's just some evil puppet master that's selling us this narrative. It's just how, how certain aspects of culture move relative to others. We've been sold a narrative and specifically that, you know, you're born into, um, well, there's lots of narratives that we've been sold, but if you think about the educational narrative that we've been sold that I've already replayed and most importantly, with respect to the book that you are, um, not, or that you're a cork in the tide rather than no, wait a minute, three things. Everyone is creative by nature. And if you just ask any first grade class, who wants to come up to the front of the room and draw me a picture, how many hands goes up? Every single hand goes up. And then you ask the same group in sixth grade, half as many hands, the same group when they're seniors. And if you're lucky, if two or three people want to sort of stick their neck out. Now that's a cultural thing. That just shows us that creativity is not something that's bestowed on us at birth. It's not some magical fairy dust that some people receive and others don't. That creativity is a birthright. Everyone has it by nature. In fact, we are creating machines as humans. So why negate that? Why try and pretend that that doesn't exist? Rather, let's lean into that and say that, okay, if we understand creativity is more than just art, it's combining anything to make things new and useful. It's the solution to every problem that we will ever know. That creativity is a habit, not a skill. Why wouldn't we train that? And, and mm-hmm. it, it, you can sit around and wait for the school system to figure that out, or you can take charge of yourself today. And it's, the reality is that yes, you know, being a, 
a cake baker as like I used earlier or um, learning how to play the piano, the guitar. Yeah, that, that will make you a better surgeon or a better mother or a better fill in the blank because what you're doing, you're wiring your, your neurology to put new ideas together in new and useful ways. So like, mm. you know, that's to me a really easy way to see why the educational crisis, the <clears throat> financial crises, a lot of the the biggest challenges that our culture faces is largely based on um, ignoring our innate superpower as humans, the thing that differentiates us from every other species. And what I'm trying to get us to do is lean into that, that it's not fickle or whimsical or naive to pursue the thing that you love or in fact creativity, that it's actually the most practical thing that you can, that you can pursue. Wow. I love that. So I, I know we've been kind of dancing around the edges of it. Obviously, I, I want to give you a, an opportunity to talk about the book. And, and I realized, like, I, I opened up the mind map, as I told you, because I didn't get to, you know, make physical notes the way I did before. And this thing has so many damn branches uh, <laughs> damn that I thought, okay, you know what? I, I know where I want to go with this. So you offer this really phenomenal framework called IDEA. Um, explain what that is to us, and then we'll go into each one of them. Okay. Um, I'm again, for, for, I think my, my, um, I'm a very practical person and I believe I'm a creative person. I think that's the, the label that a lot of folks who from the outside may put on me, just looking at my bio or whatever, my life from the internet. And, and I want to underscore sort of the practicality. I, <clears throat> through my own experience of, um, you know, disappointing most of the, well, I would say all of the important people in my life in deciding that I was going to pursue the thing that I was, I believed that I was meant to put on this earth to do that, that it was incredibly practical. And that when I saw the results, I was like, okay, that's, that's a takeaway. And then 10 years ago, I started my podcast, Chase Travis Live and realized that, you know, all those people that I mentioned, the Bransons and the <clears throat> Mark Cubans and the Brene Browns and the Debbie Millman's and the Damon Johns's of the world. Wait, after talking to them for hours and doing that hundreds of times across 10 years, there's a real simple pattern here. And everyone, whether it's on a project, an individual project, or in thinking of what they want for their life, you could distill it into these really four simple principles. And I've, I've labeled that system, the idea system. And so it's a, it's basically a, a creative process that works on, again, like playing a, a song on the piano or building your life, that every success is ultimately rooted in the same set of behaviors and the same ideas. And the, idea, the, the, the principles are these four, and uh, I use the acronym IDEA. So I is imagine. Imagine what you want um, to make, whether again, it's a project to your life and think about truly what you want and how big it can be, or it doesn't have to be big, big is not better or more beautiful, but imagine we're rarely taught to imagine what we actually want in this world. And so the, the chapters in there go into like how you would actually frame and imagine what you want. And then the next one is, um, design every, all the lives of the people that you admire, whether they're pro athletes or it's your grandmother or some way, shape or form design, they said, I want it to be like this. Even if they did it, not 
always consciously, they designed the outcome. And this is, this is doable. This is repeatable. So you need to design a system that looks like something that will get you to what you imagine. The next one is, is execute. So you need to execute on that plan, right? You designed a plan, you need to execute on that plan, just as if you were building a house. You can't just start building a house and end up with something that's coherent and cogent unless you had a blueprint. And so you need to execute against that blueprint. And then the last one, which is a really crucial step, is amplify. And amplification is not about beating your chest, but it is about community. And if you, you know, nothing in this world happens, or very few things in this world happen by any individual action. It's almost always a group action. We are social animals. If a child is born and it's not held and coddled, it dies. And the reality is that we're always in a social structure trying to fit in. And so the concept of amplification is how do you both find other communities that are already existing to connect to, and very importantly, how do you build a community around your own work, around your own vision for your, you know, for this idea framework? So the book is organized. It's very structurally simple, right? Each There's four sections. Each of these sections has a few chapters in it that give you a roadmap for how to how to um, make your way in the world. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Speaking of the roadmap, let's uh, let's do a deeper dive into it. Like I said, I when I mind map this thing out, like I said, I just opened it up and I was like, wow, there's so many branches here. It would take us <laughs> to cover them all. Uh, but I think that, you know, where I want to start with Imagine, because we've actually kind of, you know, unintentionally covered a good amount of stuff that fell into that chapter. But you talk about sure. walking your path. And I think there was one in two areas in particular that struck me as interesting, actually three. You talked about the illusion of safety, the winding path, and then this really cool acronym DEER. Uh, mm. you walk us through those things? Sure, sure. So um, I think imagining what's possible is very hard for us because, you know, go back to the first messages that we got in this world. I'll, I'll tell you, as a second grader, I loved being creative. I drew all the time. I used to draw comic books and and um, do math. I love to perform. I love to do magic tricks and sing songs and and I remember my second grade teacher, I overheard her telling my mom at a student teacher conference that Chase is, you know, my mom made some comment about my comic books or something. And she's like, just, just by the way, like Chase is so much better as at, at sports than he is at art. And I overheard that. And I use that as an example, like how many little dreams were squashed in that moment? Because the first thing I did is I ran right to, okay, great. Then I want to fit in and I want to, I want to earn the accolades and support of others. So I'm going to just double down on that. And I'm going to walk away from this stuff that I'm not very good at. And if you look at that, and we've all had that experience in some way, shape or form, what we're doing in that moment is betraying ourselves. And, but fear not, there's a, there's a way to get it back. And that's kind of what this book is about. Um, but if you think about that as input, as these messages, of course, it's hard to imagine what's possible. You know, we're, we're raised in a world that is a, a fixed mindset world. And so imagine teaches us to think bigger and not just on the scale of like uh, more money or more fame or more health or more whatever, but just don't think in a constrained way. And you mentioned the, the um, acronym DEER, which is a very, very um, helpful way of understanding how others think about the world such that you can get out of this fixed mindset. Because let's just take Sir Richard Branson, right? The guy has 400 companies. He's worth billions of dollars. Um, and just, I happen to know him personally. He's an investor in Creative Live. And I can tell you, he's, you know, he's, he's genuinely living his, his best life. And so if you look at, you analyze someone like that or any individual project that that Sir Richard or any, anyone else who is a hero, there's a way to look at the projects and the people that inspire you. And it's basically using this acronym DEER, <clears throat> you deconstruct what they've done. And, you know, for me, wanting to become a photographer, I used to go stand in front of the, the magazine rack at Barnes & Noble 
I couldn't afford the magazines. That's how poor I was. And I would take notes about all of the pictures that were in the magazines that I loved. And for me, it was action sports. I loved skiing, snowboarding, photography. That's what I wanted to be. I deconstructed the work that was, was that, that others were, were finding success in, who the photographer was, where the location was, who was in the photograph, what was being um, revealed in the image, what emotion was present. And you can do this with anything. You're deconstructing what's, what you see as successful out in the marketplace or in your friend group or whatever. The next one is, what can you do to emulate that? You know, the first step in learning is imitation, right? Like that's what a, a baby starts making sounds um, with their mouth when they hear their parents talking and they're emulating what they see. And, and so copying isn't some sort of negative thing. It's actually the first step in learning. And so in learning to think in this sort of larger way, let's emulate, let's start behaving what is you know, what you, what you admire in the world and, and what are the characteristics of the people? What are the, the objectives that they're chasing and how can you orient your life towards some of these things and then analyze, right? D E A R you're analyzing what's working for you, what's working, what's not working and how are you the same and how are you different than Sir Richard or than, um, the action sports photographer on the cover of snowboarding magazine or whatever. And then the magic <laughs> piece of this four-part formula is repeat. And you're saying, wait a minute, if I just repeat being like everybody else, how am I going to find my own path in this world? Because isn't that what this is about, Chase? And that's the, that's the hard part because the repeat is where the work happens, right? If you just mm -hmm. do that near process once, then you'll learn something, but it's not really going to uncover who you are and what you want out of this world. So the repeat part is a, you're building this muscle that I keep talking about. And most importantly, you are, it's only through repetition that you can find your own personal style. In the beginning, mm -hmm. every painter, every photographer, every person who's building a business, they're just looking at what they see out in the world and trying to, trying to draw some piece of it into their own. And it's by repeating, you start to understand what your personal style is, what your vision is. And photographers, this is the, you know, I've, I've counseled millions through, through creative live. This is the, this is the elusive thing. Like, how do I get hired? How do I stand out in a crowded marketplace? And the reality is that you're chasing personal style. And the only way to get that personal style is by doing a lot of work such mm -hmm. that you don't actually have to think you just do the thing and whatever you do naturally, that's the yeah. lens through which you see the world. So the system deer ladders back up to helping you imagine what's possible with your life through seeing the what's worked for others and then breaking down those limitations to create your own narrative. Wow. Uh, <laughs> imagine. Like I said, I, I mean, this book is so deep in terms of, of many of these things. So I, I, you know, like I said, there's so many branches on this mind map and I'll, I'll link it up in, in the show notes for anybody listening who I wants to see, to see it. it and yeah, I can't uh, wait to see it. But, you know, you go into to design here and, you know, I don't want to spend time talking about systems and habits because I've taught a course for you guys on yep. that. We've had a lot of people come and talk about that. But I do want to revisit something that you and I talked a bit about, um, and that is the things that zap our creativity. Uh, the irony is, right, so many of the tools that facilitate our creativity are often the things that are zapping it. Yeah. Um, how do you think about that now, a year after our conversation? Well, I put a lot of thought into this section of the book. Um, because as you're creating systems, as you said, there's a million books on, on habits and your course is the, you know, the pinnacle on, on habits and creative live. There's a, a lot of ways to frame that in the positive and in the negative. There's so many things out there that 
zap our creativity. And I looked really carefully at my own list, um, having, you know, uh, done research and analyzed my own effort. And the same thing is true with the, the, the patterns of others. You start to look around, you're like, wait, social media, it's so important because that's how I get my brand out there. And it's democratization. And, you know, now I've got my own, uh, mouthpiece to speak to millions of people who are on the other end of my social following. Great. What I find is that most people don't approach that with the strategy that's actually going to help it. They just kick the can down the road every morning. And by, and by consuming all of the work of others, rather than creating, you're really just telling yourself a little fib. And what it actually has is a downward negative spiral where you realize that or where you don't realize that you're looking at the highlight reel of everybody else and you're comparing it to your actual life. So there's this negative downward cycle and whether it's social media or not taking care of yourself physically and emotionally, you know, that's a really popular, um, it's a, it's a really easy way to get sucked into doing things that are not healthy for you just by paying attention to pop culture. And so, you know, I, I advocate for being really intentional with, what is it that you're doing and can you avoid doing so many of the things that we know drain our creativity, drain our aspiration and our inspiration and our capacity to grow and thrive? A lot of those are physical habits. Um, I just had a great conversation with uh, the author Liz Gilbert around, uh, you know, she's the author of Eat, Pray, Love, which was a mm. you know, sold 12 million copies and Julia Roberts played her in the movie and also the author of Big Magic and most recently City of Girls. And she said, my primary occupation is taking care of my mental health. Secondarily, I'm a writer. But primary, the, the most important thing for her was her mindset. And I think we, we often looked past that. We feel like corks in the tide rather than taking care of taking responsibility of our own, you know, our, our own um, mindset and mentality. So uh, I think that that part of the book was... Um, it's very intentional that there's a, a simple pattern that I've experienced and that the people that I've interviewed on my show, hundreds of people, that if you do more of things A, B, and C and do less of things D, E, and F, that you're already just by default in a better place. Mm. So <clears throat> one thing I know that you also spent quite a bit of time talking about is you talked about failure in this book and mm -hmm. I wanted to come at it in a way that probably I know people have asked you about in the past. Uh, and this is the, obviously the million dollar Instagram question. You said, you know, by the time Facebook bought Instagram, some time had passed, despite the frustration and sense of loss, I felt strangely calm, almost peaceful. I silenced the torrent of notifications on my phone and sat quietly letting it all sink in for a minute. I knew I was facing my biggest professional failure, a billion dollars worth. More than missing out on a big payment, I was missing the joy I would have felt in seeing my work used by damn near every person with a phone. And I wonder uh, now <clears throat> how you think about that. Okay, uh, think about that. Yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, it, how you think about that now and how you think about it having had conversations with people like Richard Branson and Mark Cuban. Uh, and how your own perception of what it means to be wealthy has changed. Um, the super short backstory is that I had the the precursor to Instagram was Instagram was a list lift and stamp copy of an app that I created in 2009 that went on to be the app of the year on the Apple 
on the Apple platform. Uh, it was called Best Camera, and it was the first photo app that allowed you to take pictures, add effects that were called filters, and publish them direct to social networks. There was no such thing as a photo feed before Creative or before uh, Best Camera. We had to get that approved through Apple in a special approval process. So that went on, was successful, and then we ultimately got trounced by this company called Instagram, who pivoted, <laughs> who pivoted, took fifty million in venture funding, and. Um, threw all that money and kicked our ass because I was a cap table of one, didn't have any investors. And and we know that the outcome of Instagram was a that billion dollar sale. And that's what the part that you were reading from talks about. And it certainly redefined, uh, there was a lot of tactical lessons that I learned about venture capital and about buying and selling businesses and about um, the marketplace and competition. Um, but I think the most important takeaways were way more emotional and um, personal. And in particular, the like, what is what is wealth uh, to me? It, of course, you know the that having the basic financial security to protect you and your family, and and um, that's that's understandable. There's also plenty of research that says that every dollar that you make above seventy thousand dollars, which is what it takes to make the average family safe, have shelter, have food, et cetera, that it actually, there's no higher correlation to, um, happiness. In fact, it's a downward trend. And there's also research that says that people who won the lottery are less happy than people who had uh, a limb amputated, for example. So we know that, that financial success is, um, as only a very, very small part of the solution. And it's also a big part of the problem. And for me, I was able to look past the financial part when I realized that what got me excited about the work that I was doing was the impact that it could have on people's creativity. And so what was a billion dollar loss for me and a billion dollar gain for Kevin Systrom and the founders of Instagram, it wasn't a monetary win or a loss for me, although that's you know, that's in part true. To me, it was a reality that what would I do tomorrow after getting knocked down? I would just stand back up and keep trying to build something that mattered to me. And that brings it back to the core principles of the book that, that there's a, a huge joy and a connection, a human connection when we're doing things with our time, which is the one thing that we've all got a very limited amount of, and it's measured in years and weeks and months and days not centuries. And that by spending your time working on things that matter to you, we create meaning in our lives. And while I was disappointed to, to not have the billion, I realized that very, very important lesson that made in part made me want to write this book, that meaning is developed through how we spend our time with who do we spend it and why. And that there's an, an, an potentially infinite amount of joy that can come from that. Mm, I love that. So I think that, you know, you mentioned getting back up after you fall. And one of the things I wanted to do is to talk briefly about mental health, because this is a real issue in the circles that you and I run in, in, you know, the circles that anybody who's listening to this runs. And you know, Jerry Colonna was here. Uh, just a few weeks ago, talking about his new book, Reboot. And one of the things he said is that for many people who either do creative work or they're entrepreneurs, their you know, self-worth and their enterprise are coupled. 
And having, you know, been through all of this, um, I know, you know, basically because of having taught a course at Creative Lab, I know some of the people that work there, you know, you had to do a layoff earlier this year. How do you, how do you navigate these kinds of moments? Uh, because I know from having sat down with you that these people matter to you, even if they are still not around sure. and you had no choice, but to let them go. So I, I wonder how you deal with things like this. Um, so this, like every individual setback, whether in, in personal life or in business life, to me, the, the growth mindset, it, it, first of all, two things. One, it's, it's never part of processing grief or sadness or frustration is to actually experience it. And I'll just refer you to the work of, of lots of other people to, you know, the Brene Brown, for example, she's a master at, at navigating and articulating some of these viewpoints. So it's, it's part of the human condition to feel that grief and experience it. And we know from a lot of psychology that that is actually a path to healing is to, to, to feel it. And if, and, and when, when you're moving through that feeling, you, I think the strong mindset will put you back on a path where you're, you've, you're able to find the upside in any moment. You can just couch it really casually in a po- how, the power of positivity. I don't want it to sound sort of cliche and platitude and panacea Pollyanna, but you know the research is pretty clear that the ability to get back up and continue is um, a very healthy, again, assuming you're processing some of these either small or large griefs, that that is a requirement for moving forward. And just, you know, a, a simple example is like you're watching a child learn how to walk. At what time in the process of learning to walk, when the kid falls down, it's 97th time, do you say, mm-hmm. you know what? I guess my kid's just not a walker. We're going we're gonna to throw in the towel. And for an able-bodied person, the, time, the, the answer to that is zero. Like zero percent of the time do we do that. Do we think that or do we say it? And yet, when we look at pop culture failures, business failures, relationship failures, it's so easy for us to throw in the towel. What we end up doing is we do that out of largely from the judgment of others. And from the self-talk that we have, you know, going back to your point about mental health, it comes back to self-talk, which not surprisingly is connected to the inputs of others and judgment. So that's one of the reasons I'm such an advocate for a, a strong and creative um, growth mindset. I, I talk in the book about the creative mindset and, and it's very similar to a growth mindset, except it frames it in that we're all creative by nature and we can create our way in or out of any situation we, we can envision. It's that the, the mindset and the language that we use to talk to ourselves is such a critical piece that also, again, none of this is taught in, this, in schools or pop culture, or it's just, it's sort of like these little um, siloed industries that some top performers might employ, but that are not not a, there's not no real great vehicles for the rest of us to consume this information. So that's part of why it's a huge piece of the book. And the reality is that that is a huge part of the culture that we're in. I've said earlier, we're social animals, that human connection is a requirement for, um, for growth and survival as both an individual and a species. So yeah. what can we do to facilitate those things rather than shut it down? And in a world that is, as you already mentioned, 
where some of the tools that are designed to help us actually hurt us, you know, social is a great, is a great exp- uh, expression of that, right? The, the fact that we don't have to connect in real life, if we don't want to, we can stay home and, and, you know, hide under our covers or in our parents' basement. And with the illusion of human connection through a connected device, that's fine, but there's a, you know, there is a real actual human connection that's required and a mindset that facilitates it is, is paramount. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that more than you, you can possibly imagine. I mean, people are like, why are you planning a conference? You know, you know how much work goes into this, you know, it doesn't make as much money as you want. I'm like, look, at the end of the day, I get to sit here and have conversations with you. And I remember telling, you know, one of my, my team members, I said, look, every week, thousands of people hear my voice, but I don't get to hear theirs. Uh, and like, I want to connect with people like that is ultimately the motivation. And I was like, there are a lot of easier ways to make money. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it was like, this is so necessary, particularly because of where we're at. And I, that's, I think that was what I really appreciated about the way you approached community was it wasn't just a bunch of like, you know, audience building tactics or hacks. Um, you really kind of emphasize the importance of that. And I think in a lot of ways, our, I think in many ways, social, which initially started as a connection tool, in my mind, has evolved largely to a broadcasting mm-hmm. tool. Um, and yeah, and I think that's in the interest of these companies because they're not getting paid to allow us to connect. It's like I said, you know, Mark Zuckerberg might say that you know Facebook's mission in the world is to make it more open, connected, but their business model is to sell your attention to advertisers. I don't know if those two things. I think those two things are kind of in conflict with right. each other. So true. Uh, but let's get into this idea of Amplify. And I want to talk uh, a bit about audience building, particularly because you and I, our last conversation was about this whole idea of an audience of one. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite quotes from the book, uh, and I tweeted this yesterday, you probably saw this because I remember you liked I did, it. Yeah. Uh, you said, you know, don't develop your work on a foundation of creativity, authenticity, and heart only to aggregate a hollow list of followers via gimmicks and schemes. Build a genuine audience that loves what you do how you do it and why. Uh, and I, I love that quote because I think it's so necessary for people to hear that. And yet, despite all of that, it's a hard sell for a lot of people. I mean, you talk about this idea of the other 50%. And to me, that was really what that was is like, yes, for the love of God, like how much time do we put into the work itself? Not nearly enough. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, there's some subtlety in the message that I want to acknowledge and it does stem, you know, out of, uh, it's, it's, there's a really nice branch to use your earlier word that, um, connects an audience of one that, that, you know, you've advocated for with the way that I think about community. I think about if you're, if you're doing the things that you generally genuinely are, are passionate, connected to motivated by, um, inspired by that, you know, that's the audience of one that people can see, feel, smell that. And by sharing the idea of your audience of one, you're doing two things simultaneously. One, you're both being authentic as hell because you're in service of what motivates and incites and inspires and, and, and creates the love feeling that you have. And then by doing that, you're also acting as a beacon for others and a beacon both, you know, is a signal, but also this, uh, you're, you're 
people are drawn to the light that you put off when they can see that you're actually being authentic. And when you combine that idea with what I've said earlier about how we're social animals and how human connectivity is a requirement, it's easy to see how by putting in that work to first do the things that are, that listen to that internal compass, how valuable that is. And then by having, uh, again, I, I, I talk about it in 50% chunks that if you're spending you know, a huge piece of your, of your time, ideally 50% building, nurturing a community of like-minded people joining existing communities for whom you, your, your values are aligned and, and building a community around you and your work. These, it does not have to be a community on Instagram of a million people. If you're a, the the example, a counter example I use in the book is if you're a blacksmith and you're living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and you're your tribe, your community is the community of the 22 restaurateurs in Jackson Hole who you create their knives for them. To me, that it doesn't matter if there's 22 people or 22 million people on the other end of your work, that you need to communicate, that, that community is a huge part of it. And what we're told is that a bunch of myths. One is that great work always rises to the top not true. Great work. It does, it it is the entry point. (laughs) It is a requirement. And then every person that you, that you know of who has had sustained success has built a community around his, her, or their world. That is just fact. And what, you know, there's the, um, the phrase, a 10 year overnight success that most people look past like, Oh my gosh, this person came out of nowhere. Well, Sure, if, the, if there are such things as flash in the pans, but for everything that's not a flash in the pan, there's 10 years or 10,000 hours or whatever management measurement you want to use of incredibly hard work behind that success. And to me, it's actually called building community. And we get it mixed up with promotion. And it's not that because I like to think of it through, you need to be the fan that you wish you had. If you want more likes on your posts or people showing up at your restaurant or, or, um, people attending your play or becoming customers to your business, what are you doing to do that for other people? This is not just karma either. This is community. This is by showing up for first yourself and then others, you are creating a dynamic that is both your you know, authenticity to yourself and a beacon for others simultaneously. And this is, again, this is not talked about. We're just, it's like do perfect work, be the best in the world and everything takes care of itself. That's shite. That's just not, not the reality. And you can deconstruct, go back to my dear system. You can deconstruct the success Uh of anybody. And there's a huge element of community to it all. Oh, I think to me, I, you know, I, I was joking with my business partner, like, I, you know, I'm only known by association. <laughs> like, that is the only reason anybody knows who I am is because of, of the fact that, but that has, you know, been one of those things where I've been able to give people like you a platform to come and, and you know, talk about their books. And I've realized that that is kind of how community got built, even though I don't necessarily know that I was doing it consciously. Yep, for sure. That's a great example. And you know, the same is true, whether it's a podcast or a platform like creative live or showing up to somebody's play on a Monday night 
Because mm-hmm. that person will be grateful and they will, in, in, in turn, whether through um, the psychological um, principle called reciprocity or through genuine interest, be more likely to support you. And even if that is not a one-to-one trade, it's not really a tactical, you give me this, I give you that. It does create, and this again, how many times have you listened to someone who's crazy passionate about what they do? You don't even have to be interested in stamps. You don't have to care about nuclear physics, but if they are pumped, you can feel it. You can smell it. You can see it. It's obvious. And to me, that's part of why you would go to do the thing that you're supposed to be doing on this earth rather than something that's not, because you can't, you might be able to fake it for a little bit, but you can't fake it forever. Mm. And so if you start off by taking, you know, put your own oxygen mask on before assisting other passengers and you're doing this thing, you're listening to your call and you're walking on your own path that, that helps frame the community aspect. There are communities that are built that exist in this world around the things that you care about, despite how, especially now with the internet, right? Despite how um, esoteric they might seem, there's a community for everything. And you simultaneously need to be, be building the community around the work that you are putting out in the world, you personally, a community around Serini or Chase or, you know, whoever's listening to this right now, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the blacksmith in, in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Well, I was speaking of Jackson Hole uh, and uh, skiing. Let's go. <laughs> I think that, you know, when you, you know, not to, to totally give it away, but you, you tell this story uh, about losing a friend. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny because our, our best of episode today on the podcast that we air every Friday happens to be the one with Frank Ostaseski from the Zen Hospice Project, who talked a lot about mortality. And, you know, he says that, you know, we spend all this time thinking we're going to be ready for the time that we die. And it's an absurd gamble. And, and the reason that came up with him was because I had told him about this fear that I had that one or both of my parents would, might not be around when I got married or had kids because I'm still single and I'm older. And he actually said, don't let that be a reason to stop spending, to, to, you know, keep you from spending time with them now. And when I read that, the question that came to my mind was what decisions did you make about how you were going to live going forward based on having lost somebody important to you that at that point in your life? Um, whether we like it or not, there are a handful of pivotal moments in every person's life and and they often surround promotions or the loss of a job or the loss of a life or a traumatic experience. And I think in a perfect world, I, I tongue in cheek talk about this in the book that in a perfect world, we discover this through Vipassana or through exercise or through, you know, uh, eating a bowl of Wheaties and looking at the box of the cereal and just be really inspired. But that's, just not how life works. And the human condition is such that um, great moments that there are pivot points that that have profound impacts on us, it's because it shakes us out of our day-to-day and actually puts us in a moment of reflection. And sometimes those are blissful and the birth of a child, for example, or horrible and traumatic. And um, what I'm advocating for is paying attention to those things. And for me, you know, there's this, there's a, a, a part of the book is through my narrative. Cause I, I, I think about that's the, I, I know truly intimately the course of my life and I've made most every mistake you can go back to student debt loans. Like I had a hundred thousand dollars, go back to, you know, death and dying. I've had a lot of very people that are very close to me pass away through 
my profession of photographing them doing crazy things and and just natural like my grandfather dropped out of a heart attack and that helped me i got his cameras and helped me become a photographer the point that you're referencing in the book is the death of a very very close friend of mine ironically in an avalanche which just a few years prior i was in uh one of the biggest avalanches human human triggered avalanches uh of a year in in Alaska that claimed a lot of lives. And I, by every measure of math, should be dead. Um, It was just a massive avalanche. I was caught right in the middle of it, skiing up in Alaska on a photo shoot for Nike and for some of the, uh, a couple of the big magazines and action sports. And the, the ability to, not ability, the luck uh, with having survived that and then just a couple years later, having lost one of my closest friends to that same hand, it these things, they inevitably force us to take stock of our lives. The first time for me, the avalanche, it is in part what helped me go on to create things like that iPhone app that was used by millions of people or Creative Live that was, I mean, directly, I said, I'm going to, instead of just, again, I was living a life that was my dream life. And then it just caused me to reflect that, wait a minute, my dream life was all about me. What about providing value and service and being in service of others? So that's, you know, that first avalanche that I was caught in created, you know, the best camera and motivated Creative Live and a bunch of other, you know, tools that I've made for for tens of millions of people around the world. When my friend Chris was killed very similar to how I should have been killed, it had that same power on us. And what the book advocates is, not seeking this or um, avoiding it, but just being honest with ourselves in those moments and using that as a mirror to ask ourselves, are we following our highest calling? And so many times the answer is no. And what better way to get us out of our day-to-day and snap us into being able to look at that in a truly honest way. And then ideally this motivates action. Wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be too heavy, but the, the, that's the reality. And, and, you know, the flip side of like, I'm, I don't, I'm not a parent. I don't have children. I'm a, I, I'm what I call a funkle. I'm, I'm a really, I'm a fun uncle to, um, to, uh, my nephew and a couple of others by extension, like the pretend uncle, but you can get the same inspiration from the positive aspects of life. We just tend to not linger in those positive moments as long as we do in the the harder times. And that's why I use, you know, the death of my grandfather or my the avalanche or my friend's Chris passing because we're, it tends to hold us in place for a little bit longer than the joy moments. And I just advocate looking at those. If it's, again, if you can just read the book and make these decisions without requiring the grief and that pause and that like, yeah. life holding me down just for a second, then, Hey, more power to it. But <laughs> acknowledging that the reality is that we do, you know, have this moment of reflection and sometimes can be more profound and more sustained, um, by the negative outcomes that just use those when they're yeah. there. Because, you know, I like to think that life is happening uh, for us, not to us. Hmm. That's why I always joke that, you know, your art can be turned into great pain. All you have to do is look at the multi uh, decade recording career of Chicago. yeah Yeah, you know i think 
you know, we were born to create, we're creating machines. And, you know, if, if creativity is this heartbeat, well, just look at the work of, I think this guy's name is John Cassiopo. Like thirst reminds us that we need to drink water or we're going to die. And hunger reminds us that we need to eat food or we're going to die. And pain or injury or loneliness or this heart stuff that I'm talking about, it, it reminds us of something. And I'm suggesting that what, should, what it should remind you of is that you are a creator, that this is a label that you should own. It does not require that you wear a beret and move to Paris and take up oil painting. This is creativity in the sense that you, by creating in small ways every day, whether you're building a business, writing code, I've given a hundred examples through our conversation that that act of creating on a daily basis and acknowledging it again, it's required like you can take, I bet 95% of the people listening to this podcast have taken a photograph with their phone in the last 24 hours. And just the simple concept of looking at that as a creative act will make you feel and think differently, especially if then you start doing it a little bit more and doing it intentionally that when you create in small daily ways, it's the same exact muscle. You're building a muscle that will allow you and inspire you to create the living and the life that you want for yourself. Hmm. Amazing. So I have one last question for you, which is oh, how these we are always do these. Anytime someone says like, and the final question, yeah. I'm like, oh, I, <laughs> I bet my well, knees when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've asked you this question before, so it'll be interesting to see how you answer it uh, a couple of years later. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to plant your question in my mind. I'm, <laughs> you're, doing the, you're doing the asking. I'm doing the answering. <laughs> yeah. I'm all ears. Go for it. What, what do you think that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oof. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I need to use a few more words than the one sentence that I think would be ideal. But to me, unmistakable is to be unmistakably you. And just know that there are, it's understandable that there are forces that are trying to shape not who you are, but really who you're pretending to be. I think who you are is who you are. That if you actually can develop this relationship with yourself where you're trusting in this intuition, you're able to look inside and answer, like, what do I want to be doing with this one precious life? What do I want to do to acknowledge that I'm a creator and not betray yourself? What If you can get tuned into that, that is both a chunk of plutonium that can drive your entire life and simultaneously can be a beacon for everyone around you, for your kids, your spouse, your partner, um, the, the group that you're a leader of, like these are the shoulds. They never go away. They may change as you get older. You know, instead of you should be a straight A student, you should be someone who provides a six figure income for your family or you should, um, you know, the list of shoulds, it never goes away. But by listening to who you are and being unmistakably you, that is, that is all you can ask. And in doing that, the world unfolds for you. 
You're never going to have to stop pushing for this. This is not an easy thing. But by listening to that call, walking the path that we're supposed to be walking in life, and we know that intuitively, if we can find a way to connect, continue to connect with that, and that's part of what this book is about, it's never going to go away. It's always going to be a little bit of a struggle or a fight there. I just think that it's worth the struggle, that it's worth the fight to be yourself and to be unmistakable. Wow. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. Uh, subject yourself to my insane questions. <laughs> I love uh, your question. We've, we've had a number of conversations over the years and um, yeah. been on one another's podcast and it's a treat to be able to, to be back here. And thanks for helping me, you know, sh- share the work that I've just, I, I mean, this is a, you know, a 10 year project. I've been writing it, like physically typing the words and writing the words on scraps of paper and whatnot for, you know, for years now. And, um, I feel like I've built a bunch of products and platforms and this is the why, this is the thing that sews it all together. Like why get up in the morning? Why do what we do? And a roadmap for all the stuff that's in the black box that nobody says how I'm trying to provide a roadmap for, um, tapping into who we authentically are through, you know, the lens that I've learned about myself and, and all these other top performers, you included, um, and, and provide a little bit of a roadmap for people. Speaking of which, where can people, uh, find the book and everything else that you're up to? I know creative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for asking. Uh, anywhere books are sold. The book is called creative calling, establish a daily practice, infuse your world with meaning and succeed in work and life. Um, so, you know, the Amazons, the Barnes and Nobles, the books a million, wherever you go, it's there. Um, creativecalling.com has, uh, there's some other, um, if you pre-order, there's some special, special gifts and we're tying that into a, a class at Creative Live. So, um, check out Creative Calling at Creative Live. There's a special class for people who pre-order. There's a, a bunch of stuff, but again, I don't want to be overly prescriptive. I just know that I put everything I had in, <laughs> into this thing and I'd love to share it with, with anyone who's interested. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.